Thanks for tuning in to the For Love of the Game podcast, where we uncover the most cherished stories of America's favorite pastime. Woven into the DNA of our country are tales from our backyards and sandlots, summer leagues to the big leagues. Every fan has a personal connection, a memory, resonating in each of us. It takes us on a journey to a time long forgotten, or a moment in our youth. That first time we heard the crack of the bat, the roar of the crowd, the smell of the fresh cut grass. And these cherished recollections sit there in the back of our minds beckoning us back to the game that we know and love, our reason to come back home, our reason for our love of the game. Joining the podcast today is longtime Seattle Mariners fan, Mr. Bill Knudsen. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jim. It's great to be here. So, Bill, you've been involved with the game and and around the game for, for quite some time, but I'm curious where did it all start for you? Who introduced you to baseball? Well, I had a wonderful stepdad who adopted me when I was three years old, and uh, he was a huge baseball fan, played it in school, actually went through all life with a crooked finger from being a catcher and caught one on the end of the finger. And uh, so he had a crooked finger that uh, gave him trouble socially sometimes when uh, people didn't understand where it came from. But uh, anyway, my dad uh, was a huge fan and uh, when I grew up, we didn't have Major League Baseball in Seattle, of course. So we uh, grew up as Seattle Rainier fans, which was a AAA club here in Seattle. It played at the Rainier Ballpark, sponsored by Rainier Beer. And uh, so that ballpark was synonymous with baseball here in the Northwest up until 69 when the Seattle Pilots first came. So I went to that ballpark, Rainier Ballpark, with my parents for years and years and years and years. And that's where I learned the game. Okay. And do, do you have any specific memories or, or you know, f- from watching the Rainiers play that, that really stick out in your mind? Well, two things that I was enamored with when I was a kid. One was there was a big hole in center field sponsored by Western Airlines. And if any player ever hit a home run through that hole, we all got a trip on a Western Airlines. And I was convinced as a kid that uh, one of these days that ball was going to go through that little hole. I don't know how big it was, but it wasn't very big. And, uh, and uh, so I enjoyed going to the games, telling my parents, this is the, this is the week we're going to win the trip to Disneyland on Western Airlines. Alas, it never happened. The other thing was kind of interesting. We have a very famous florist in Seattle named Charles O'Sullivan. And Sullivan Florist was around for, gosh, 40, 50 years. And in the old days, when a, Seattle, when a, uh, a uh, uh, Rainier ball player would hit a home run, when they came around third base, they'd make a wide turn swing by Mr. Sullivan's box and he'd slip him a 20. So every, every uh, uh, you know, minor league baseball player that was starving to death, you know, eating in McDonald's three times a day, picked up a nice fresh 20 for Mr. Sullivan. So it was pretty funny to watch those players make a very wide turn at third. <laughs> That's awesome. also a great, great bank on the left over left field at Rainier ballpark. And when I was in high school, we could sneak down there and, uh, occasionally would uh, sneak an adult beverage out on the bank there. And uh, you could sit on the bank and watch the game for free if you were willing to put up with the weather in Seattle. So we did that a lot on Friday nights, uh, take a blanket and a date and, uh, and maybe a, uh, a Rainier beer and undercover and uh, sit out there on the bank and uh, God, it was fabulous. And it was, I've got some great memories out there. Wow. That that's awesome. And, and only, only in minor league baseball too. I mean, there's so many, a great little, you know, promotions like that. And then little spots like that, that, that can only be offered up. 
uh, by minor league baseball, I think. Um, and, and, you know, we, we mentioned uh, Major League Baseball was slow to make its way to the Pacific Northwest. Did you follow any, any Major League clubs growing up? Well, when I was a teenager, uh, I, it was it was during the uh, the Mickey Mantle uh, uh, the Mickey Mantle uh, um, what was his partner there that hit all the home runs? Oh, Roger Maris. Roger Maris. Yeah, that was going on when I was in high school, and so obviously every kid in America was following that. My favorite player growing up was Ted Williams. The the Rainiers were a affiliate of the Red Sox, and so we got a lot of uh, hype in Seattle on the Red Sox and. Uh, I worship Ted Williams. I mean, I still think he's the greatest hitter I've ever seen. Uh, and I've seen Edgar Martinez and a couple of pretty good ones, but, uh, but he was fabulous. So he was kind of my favorite. Yeah, no, I mean, and that the kid was, like you said, probably the greatest hitter to ever live. And, you know, that, that was his one goal in life to be proclaimed that, but um, he certainly lived up to those expectations. And, um, I think one of the coolest baseball memories in general is that the all-star game at Fenway, um, one of Williams last appearance there and all the players were, um, you know, walking around him. And I think that the, the story goes, I think he asked Mark McGuire if, if you can still, you know, smell the ball when, when you just miss one and it comes off the bat, you still smell um, the bat burn or, or something like that. So yeah. um, it's, it's just sto stories like that. Um, are just so cool. I watched um, that. I, that made me cry to watch that. I mean, it was talk about hero worship guys that, you know, are that we all worship now were in awe to meet Ted Williams. It was amazing. I mean, it made me tear up. Yeah. And, and to just think about how much uh, talent won, but just knowledge of the game was in that circle. It, it just gives me goosebumps. Yeah. I agree. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm going to jump forward a, a few years in, in your life here. Um, and you were fortunate enough to work for the Seattle Mariners for a, what is it about seven plus years or so. Yes, sir. Um, how did you get your start with the team? How'd you get your foot in the door? Well, uh, when the Mariners uh, franchise was awarded to Seattle uh, was 1976 and I was general sales manager of KBI radio here in Seattle. And we were a station owned by Gene Autry, the famous cowboy. Gene owned a bunch of stations around the country. And, and uh, anyway, we were lucky enough to get the broadcast rights to the Mariners. And so we were the, we were the ones that hired Dave Niehaus who became a hall of famer. And uh, so I was there at the birth of the franchise running around selling advertising for you know the Mariners radio broadcasts sold the first package that was ever sold, which was a farmer's insurance group and uh, Budweiser and a few other people. And so had a lot of fun doing that and, uh, and got a chance to interface with the team, obviously, on a regular basis for a few years. Then I left and went to work for a competitor, another station in town. And while I was running that station, I got a call one day from a headhunter who said, well, I would like to have lunch with you. It turned out he was doing some headhunting for a VP marketing for the Mariners. And he said, uh, I've been talking to people in Seattle for about a month. And he said, your name has come up at about eight times. And he said, uh, I have got to get in front of you and talk to you about Mariner baseball. And, and so anyway, I had a nice meeting with him. He asked me if I'd be interested in having lunch with uh, Chuck Armstrong, the, the Mariner president, George Argerus, the owner. And I said, of course I would. So as I walked out the door, my then wife said, don't do it because she knew what the uh, 
hours were like working in baseball. And so I said, okay, honey, I said, I'm just going to go have a nice dinner with these guys. Well, three hours later, I walked back in the door and my wife looked at me and went, oh, you did it, didn't you? And I said, God, so my, my philosophy was, and my rationale to her was, there's 44 radio stations in Seattle. I run one of those stations. So I'm one of 44, but there's only going to be one major league baseball team within a thousand miles of Seattle. And I have a chance to do what I think is some pretty creative stuff. And, uh, and I had, I've always been kind of a frustrated creative guy. And so I just said, you know, this is a much bigger arena. Um, obviously they paid me more money, which didn't hurt. But the main reason I took the job was a chance to be one of, to have one of only 30 jobs like this in the country. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the, the creative aspect, um, just the, the promotional side of things and, and marketing and baseball really just flows so well together and it opens itself up for so much opportunities for, for branding and sponsors. Um, what, what were some of your um, responsibilities with the club? Well, in those days, Mr. Argerus was, uh, how do I say this delicately, a frugal owner. And so he wasn't exactly, uh, he was throwing, you know, quarters around like manhole covers. And uh, so we didn't have a huge staff. So my title was vice president marketing and sales. Uh, and so I was in charge of the radio and television network, all the giveaways, season tickets, group tickets, uh, game day tickets. Uh, and I had actually had PR uh, under, uh, under my, my position as well. So Basically, I was in charge of bringing revenue into the club so that the baseball people could spend it. And, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm basically a sales and marketing guy. So I, I love that opportunity. And, uh, and I can tell you that, uh, you know, when you're selling a radio station, uh, you talk to media buyers and you talk to advertising agencies and you get beat up with cost per thousand and all these, you know, terminology. But when you're the VP marketing of a baseball team, you can pick up the phone and you can call George Warehouser and you can call, you know, the chairman of the board of the Boeing company and you can call Bill Gates uh, because you work for a baseball team. And so I love that part of the job where I could actually pick up. I didn't have to talk to somebody who couldn't make the decision. I got to talk to somebody at the top of the tier who could make, you know, big decisions on the spot. And so uh, that part of the job was really lovely. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, you mentioned just the, uh, the long hours, but, uh, it, <laughs> you get to do a lot of things. And just from my experience and working in minor league baseball, um, you know, you do wear a lot of hats, but, but it's awesome. It's such a great learning experience too. And you get to do so many things that really just, um, sets you up for, for success. And, um, you really get to, um, utilize every creative aspect that, you know, that, that, that you have. Um, yeah, the and, other and thing, I'm, Jim, I would say is that, that baseball teams and, and particularly marketing is uh, the ability to do things in your community. Uh, a baseball team, a football team, basketball team, whatever, gives you an opportunity to do some magnificent things because of the, the reach you have. So for instance, one time the food bank people called and said, you know, we're in desperate shape. We're way behind on on uh, uh, food for the food bank for Christmas. And is there anything you guys could do to help us? And I said, well, sure, you know, and so I've got a radio network, I got a television network, I've got signage at the stadium, I've got programs. Uh, and so I was able to go on the air and say, hey, if you're coming to the Yankee Mariner game this Saturday night, bring a can of food, we'd love it. And uh, we filled two and a half semis full of food 
I mean, we had 38,000 people there that Saturday night. Everybody brought food. We filled two semis, uh, which was beyond the wildest dreams of the food bank people. But the ability to do those kind of things for your community was a blessing. And I was the only Seattle homegrown guy in our front office. And so I really focused on that, much to the chagrin of my California owner. Uh, but I was always cognizant of the fact that I had this big, 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 you know, voice to share with the, you know, with my community. Yeah, no, that, that's fantastic. And, and, and what a, what a thrill it must have been uh, for, for the food bank too, when they received those truckloads, holy cow. And, and what a difference um, that probably made. And, and it's so cool to um, see these teams and so involved with their communities. Um, and one of the, one of my favorite ones that um, we got to do. So I, I work for um, the Yankees AAA team in, in Scranton Wilkes-Barre there, the rail riders, and we had a teddy bear toss. So s similar concept and the fans were encouraged to bring a teddy bear and we donated to the local children's hospital and um, the Ronald McDonald house. And so that one, it was quite the sight to see teddy bears being tossed on the field <laughs> from every direction, but um, just to uh, know, know that you had an impact on, on a child's life um, just by get, you know, giving them a teddy bear and putting a smile on their face. Um, it certainly means the world. Um, and in terms of promotions, uh, I'm sure you've seen the, the good, the bad and the ugly. So do you have any um, others that might pop in your head that were, you know, some of your favorites or some that you certainly uh, want to forget? Well, okay, we'll start with the ugly. Um, I remember in 1984, our, one of our clients, uh, Washington Natural Gas sponsored Sea Cushion Night. And we were playing the Red Sox this Saturday night. And so we had these lovely seat cushions, you know, real nice ones. And I paid quite a bit for them. We gave away 20,000 of them. At the end of the first inning, it was Red Sox 13, Mariners zero. And about 10,000 of those seat cushions came flying back in like Frisbees uh, on the field. And so it took the staff, we had to delay the ball game for about 20 minutes while the staff and all of us uh, executives were running around the field like idiots picking up 10,000 seat cushions that came flying back at us. So Sunday we had bonus seat cushion day where we gave away the same 10,000. I got double dipped on those seat cushions. But uh, anyway, it was, uh, it was uh, you know, <clears throat> I'm glad we never did one of those uh, record blow up deals like the White Sox because uh, it was enough of a mess to have those seat cushions. We also oh, had good. one night where uh, <clears throat> it's one of my favorite stories. I got a call about 7.30 we're playing the Texas Rangers. I get a call from some guy who said he's in the Secret Service and Vice President Bush was giving a speech at the Washington Plaza Hotel and was all done and wanted to come down and watch a couple innings of the ball game. So I said, well, obviously, of course, bring him down. And so he came down and, uh, and all of a sudden I had dogs sniffing around the owner's box and I had guys with uh, lumpy suits, uh, you know, walking around that never smiled. And uh, about the fourth inning, in comes Vice President Bush uh, who's an absolutely wonderful guy. And he leans, he, I introduced myself and I lean, he leans in and he says, Bill, he says, uh, my wife won't let me eat onions. He said, could I have a hot dog with onions and all the stuff on it and a Budweiser? And I said, yes, sir, Mr. Vice President. So I went over and I filled up a hot dog and loaded it up with stuff and got him a nice cold beer and brought it back to him. And he was just having the time of his life. And in those days we had a big uh, pirate ship in center field and a big cannon on it. 
And uh, whenever we would hit a home run, they would shoot the cannon. It became kind of a Seattle tradition. So the vice president's eating his uh, hot dog with mustard and relish and stuff on it, and drinking his beer. Edgar Martinez hits a line drive home run just inside the right field pole, and they shoot the cannon. And the next thing you know, you've got four Secret Service guys diving on top of Vice President Bush. He's got mustard all over his tie and half his face. The beer goes flying all over the wall. And I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, how much trouble could it have been to say, by the way, we shoot a cannon off here once in a while. But those Secret Service guys were amazing. They were on him like a, you know, in a second. But God, I was just mortified that the vice president was on the floor. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I, I, can, I can only imagine the thoughts going through your head at that moment. <laughs> That's a tremendous story. And, and it's funny, um, you often see the inner kid come out of come out of people at baseball games, and that's that's so cool. All he wanted was a hot dog. <laughs> was on that's awesome. Well, and one time I had a client that wanted to meet George Brett, and uh, and I so I called George in Kansas City, and and uh, was talking to him, and I said, uh, you know, George, I said I don't expect you to do this for nothing. I said if you want me to pay you or you want me to give some money to a charity or something, I don't expect you to be visiting with my clients in Seattle you know, without some sort of uh, payback. And he said, you know what you can do for me, Bill? Again, Brett was really funny guy. I mean, really funny. And he's my favorite all-time, all-time player and one of the greatest hitters that ever lived. But anyway, he said, you know what you can do for me? He says, I've always wanted to meet Morgana, the kissing bandit. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you remember Morgana or not, but I mean, most baseball fans know who Morgana was. She had a chest the size of soccer balls. <laughs> so anyway, I tracked Morgana down. And she was in LA and I told Morgana that George Brett wanted to meet her. And of course she always wanted to be on camera, you know? And so I said, if I bought you a plane ticket and gave you a thousand bucks, would you come to Seattle and lay a big wet one on George Brett? <laughs> so she said, absolutely. So Saturday night, we're in the middle of the game. We're in the seventh inning stretch. We're taking a little break. And uh, we always play Louie Louie in Seattle, uh, you know, in the seventh inning. Anyway, in the middle of Louie Louie, all of a sudden over the, uh, over the bank from third base comes Morgana. And of course, she's running one direction. And unfortunately, her breasts tend to go the other direction. But anyway, she makes a roaring roar out to second base. George turns around, can't believe it, that I've actually pulled this off. And she laid a great big wet one on George. I mean, it was the longest kiss on record. It was the funniest thing you ever saw. And of course, the fans went crazy. And then the next day, my boss said, Where'd that, where'd she come from? Who let her on? I never had the heart to tell my boss that, it, that I'm the one who did it and I used our money to pay her. But anyway, I love Morgana coming out there. Wow, that's awesome. That That's a Hall of Fame story right there. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was that's one other thing that was kind of fun. Alaska Airlines, as you might expect, has always been a great sponsor for the Mariners. And uh, they had a big corporate picnic uh, out at a beautiful lake just east of Seattle, Lake Sammamish. And so they asked if I could get a couple of players or somebody to come out to their corporate picnic and sign autographs. And I said, sure. So uh, it was, as a matter of fact, it had to be 1989 because it was, uh, I took Griffey with me. He was a rookie. And I took Ken Griffey with me and I took Jim Lefevre. And so we went out to the park and there was about a thousand employees out there all having a great day. And, and uh, so anyway, long story short, I set up tables. I've got uh, pictures for autographs and stuff. I've got, you know, pens and pencils and I'm all organized and buttoned down. And so uh, we, I, I got on the microphone and said, okay, if you'd like to have Ken Griffey Jr. or Jamila Fever's autograph, come on down. 
And next thing you know, I had 363 people in line for Griffey and nobody for Lefebvre. <laughs> I went to Jimmy and I said, Jimmy, I am so sorry. I'm just mortified. He says, hey, don't worry about it. He said, if I had my choice, I'd be in the Griffey line too. But I thought, oh my God. So I had to go around to a whole bunch of people and say, please, 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 would you go get an autograph from Jim Lefebvre? I felt so bad. <laughs> but uh, anyway, a, a few people got in line and a couple of the corp people got wind of what was going on. And so Next thing you know, it was 365 in one line and 10 in the other, but at least we kept Lefebvre busy for his hour. <laughs> That's funny. Um, and, and then speaking of Griffey too, um, so we had Lou Pinella come for, for, for a get together for, for a few of our sponsors, um, just talking about some of his experiences. And he brought up the story um, of him and Junior had a bet, I think. Um, oh yeah, the I'm not sure. training bet. Yep, and then where <laughs> Junior ended up bringing the, the cow in the clubhouse. 2,000 pound, <laughs> 2000 pound steer taking a dump all over Lou's office in spring training. It's absolutely a true story. Yeah, That's he was, awesome. he, he was, uh, Griffey was going on and on about how he was going to hit home runs in this spring training game. And, and uh, Lou said, you know, it's great. Anybody can home run, but can you bunt? Can you get a bunt down? And so Griffey's, they made this bet that, you know, it was going to be the best stake in, in uh, Arizona. And so anyway, Lou, uh, uh, Griffey tried four times to get a bunt down, didn't get one down the whole game, so lost the bet. So the next morning, Lou comes wandering in, you know, it sits, opens the door in his office, and here's this smelly, you know, giant uh, animal taking a big dump all over his oriental carpet. <laughs> That's awesome. It was, it, um, was, it was really funny. How in the hell, I'd love to know the story sometime of how they got that steer, you know, where they got it and how they got it and wh what truck they put it in and how they, I mean, oh my, that's got to be a hell of a story all by itself. I know. Yeah, we got to, we got to track, track that one down. <laughs> that's probably, probably a, a hilarious uh, anecdote in there. Um, but uh, so you got to spend, um, like I said, seven plus years there. And do you have, are there any specific moments that you remember when you're able to to watch the game um that really just kind of stick stick have st stuck with you throughout your life well you know I, the, the the griffey highlight film would go on forever but uh you know watching watching that kid uh who was absolutely fearless climb the wall like uh spider-man and uh, and uh, make those throws from deep center you know never even touching the ground belt high to a catcher all that stuff will, you know, I'll remember that forever. Uh, Jay Buhner jumping over the fence in Fenway, uh, you know, and disappearing on the other side and then coming up with that ball in his mitt was pretty amazing. Uh, everybody in Seattle, of course, is uh, enamored with uh, Edgar's, uh, you know, hit down the line and Griffey scoring and that pig pile and that beautiful smile underneath that pig pile. I mean, all that stuff is, is uh, really special. The other thing that I always remember is that the, uh, for some reason or rather, Chuck Armstrong, our president and still a dear friend of mine, uh, we used to walk the ballpark every night, kind of anonymously for a while. Ultimately, people figured out who we were, and so it was a little harder. But we used to walk the parking lot before and after the game and listen to conversations and listen to what people had to say about the food, about the service, about the ticket prices, et cetera. And uh, very, very inexpensive focus groups that we learned a lot from and falling in love with 
seeing a grandfather and his son and his grandson used to make us tear up every time we'd see, you know, the three generations, you know, walking around the ballpark. And so all those kind of special things and, and uh, little kids and, uh, you know, just, I love that part of the, of the game. And frankly, Major League Baseball has got to do a better job with kids. They are in big trouble with kids. Go to a ball game, you know, you don't see too many kids and, uh, and we need more kids, you know. And uh, matter of fact, I did something that I'm probably the most proud thing I did as a Mariner executive. Um, I had a, a, a meeting one time with a guy named T. Wilson, who was the, the chairman of the board of the Boeing Company. And we ended up, he only had eight season tickets for 80,000 employees. And uh, that was unacceptable to the old ticket salesman, me. And so I, I called him up. He answered his own phone, shockingly, no secretary. And uh, I asked for an opportunity to see him. He said, yes, sir. And then and he said, come on down. Well, I'll serve you breakfast. So Chuck and I are sitting in, uh, in the lunchroom at the Boeing Company. And uh, so we give him a pitch on why he needed 322 season tickets which was about a quarter million dollar deal. But I took each of the divisions of the Boeing company, assigned four tickets to each division and it worked out to 322. So uh, anyway, he and a guy named Stan Little who was his, his fraternity brother and, and, and dear associate at the Boeing company, they looked at each other and literally in 30 minutes, they said, okay. And then uh, it was, we, we made the sales call in December and baseball is a little short on revenue in December. And so Chuck said, you know, Mr. Wilson, would you, would you consider, you know, a partial payment in December? Baseball has a little trouble generating revenue. And he said, there's no problem. So the next thing you know, we've got a check for $226,000 laying on the table, all in one sales call. I'm like, oh, my God. And Chuck is looking at me like I'm the greatest salesman since Lee Iacocca, right? So we get all done. And so Mr. Wilson says to me, what else, Bill? What else should we do? And I said, well, I said, I have a dream. Mr. Wilson, I've had for a long, long time. And uh, he said, well, tell me about it. And I said, well, every time I drive by a soccer field and see kids playing soccer, I know that's a wonderful thing, but it drives me crazy. I wanna see kids playing baseball. And I said, I think there's a shortage of baseball fields, quality baseball fields in the state of Washington. And I would like to build what I would call junior Mariner athletic fields. Uh, and I'd like to build one every year. And I'd like to do it in partnership with a community and I'd like to tie it into ticket sales where that community has to come and buy, you know, have a group night at the ballpark. Uh, so I could justify it to my owner that we sold some tickets. But I said, I really would like to do this. And he said, what's that gonna cost? And I said, well, I said, the, uh, the community should put up the land. You know, the community should obviously take care of the field because I'm not gonna go out there and mow the grass every Friday. Uh, but I said, you know, I mean, he called my bluff and I'm thinking, I'm scrambling like mad trying to figure out, you know, what, what's the number? So I said, well, we got to buy stands, we got to buy fencing, you know, we got to buy grass, we got to buy fertilizer, we got to, you know, I said, I could probably get Pepsi to pay for the scoreboard. So I just pulled a number out of my backside and I said, uh, well, I think, you know, if the community was with us, 75 to $100,000 a year would probably build a pretty darn nice field if we didn't have to pay for the real estate. So he looks at his friend Stan Little and he says, what do you think? Stan shakes his head yes. And he says, how many years you want to do it? I said, well, we could do it for 10 and see how work goes. He says, okay. And so the next thing you know, he gives me a million dollars to build little league fields. I mean, I was over the moon. Chuck looked at me like, oh my God, you know? And so we walked out of there with $1,236,000 and 
and they bought breakfast. <laughs> so uh, those kind of things that you can accomplish, you know, with a major league sports team are really, really special. And we built all 10 fields. And then when I left the Mariners, I got canned by Jeff Smullyan when he bought the ball club in 90. Uh, he fired uh, about 60 of us and wiped out the entire management structure. And so uh, my boss and, and most of the vice presidents and stuff, we all got nuked when one day. But uh, anyway, they didn't have the enthusiasm for that project I did. Nobody went out to re-up Boeing. And so it kind of fell apart after 10 years. But uh, nevertheless, you can still go to Carnation. You can go to Ballard. You can go to several communities here in the Northwest. And you'll see a junior men athletic field that we built with Boeing's money uh, thanks to that breakfast. Wow, that's awesome. And, and just think about how many, you know, probably in the thousands of kids that have memories at, at those ball fields now um, that, that you guys. The, that was the dream, Jim. I mean, that was the dream. These kids, I mean, it was a, I went back and told George Argerus, our owner about it. And he was not as enthusiastic as I was because, you know, obviously it didn't generate a ton of money for the, for the group. But I said, George, we're going to raise tens of thousands of Mariner fans. They're going to get pocket schedules at every game. You know, I mean, they're going to have a great big sign that says Mariners. We're going to have Mariners show up, you know, opening day of Little League Field, you know, and it's it's going to be great, but it's going to be long term great. And and in fact, you know, it has it's become just that. But uh, I wish we were still building them because I'd love to see another 10 of them get built. Yeah, no, that that's fantastic. Um, so even even after your career with the M's, um, you stayed close to the sport. Um, you now, well, about was it 12 years ago or so you started with your biweekly baseball newsletter. Um, so what made you start that? I was retired and uh, got a call from a dear friend who used to work for me who had taken over the, the CBS television station here in Seattle and they were broadcasting 35 Mariner games. The rest of the games were on cable and they were losing a lot of money on those games because their sales staff didn't understand how to sell sports. So she asked me if I would come out of retirement for a year, become the director of sports sales and help the sales staff learn how to sell sports. They could sell spot television well, but selling sports is a whole different animal. So I decided to do it for her because I love her to death. And, uh, and so I did this. So every Friday I would start a little newsletter to the sales staff of eight people. And then on Monday, I would query them on what was in the newsletter and the sales meeting and kind of give them a little mini test because I wanted to teach them, you know, about red dot sliders and, and you know, and, and infield fly rules and, and to get them knowledgeable about the game. So when I left a year later, I just stayed a year. That was what my contract was. When I left, they panicked and said, oh, my God, Bill, you got to keep the newsletter going. You got to keep the newsletter going. And so I said, OK, well, I'll, I'll do it for a while. You know, since I'm retired, I've got time and it'll kind of keep me in the game and and so I started to diversify the newsletter to be a little more newsy. Uh, and um, here we are 12 years later. <coughs> it started out with uh, eight readers. And right now I think I'm around 7,000. Wow, that's tremendous. And, and I mean, what, what has that process been like for you? I mean, have you, has, have you made any new connections from that? Um, do you have any uh, fun stories from, from, from doing that the past 12 years? Well, I've got readers all over the world, it turns out. Apparently, it's amazing what happens when you put something on the internet. Uh, one of the guys, it's kind of interesting, one of the guys that uh, 
that is a reader of mine is in the CIA and travels the world on behalf of the CIA. And I get these weird emails from him in Afghanistan. And then lately I've been getting these weird emails from him and he's in uh, Cartagena, South America. And so uh, I'm getting these people responding to emails in my newsletter from all over the world. It's fascinating. Sometimes I have to give, get a friend to come in and, and, uh, and help me understand the language because I'm getting emails from people who don't even speak English that somehow or other are reading my uh, newsletter. <coughs> so that's been a lot, a lot of fun. And it's interesting, uh, you know, one guy will share it with a buddy and his buddy will share it with a neighbor and the neighbor will share it with his company. And all of a sudden, you know, you've got entire corporations where this newsletter is bouncing around. Like my son works for Costco and uh, he's got a whole bunch of friends at Costco. He's in corporate that read my newsletter, you know, at Costco. So it, I get incredible responses and every once in a while, you know, I'll, I'll have, I'll write some special article or have some special thing and gosh, I'll get two, 300, you know, emails. All of a sudden I'll open up my computer and it lights up like a Christmas tree and Obviously, I know I've struck a responsive chord on that particular day. So I, I do it because it's fun. I do it because it keeps me in the game. Uh, I, I still am learning every day, and, and I love that. And, uh, you know, I, so I spend a couple, three hours a day that I've got the time. And, uh, and boy, but when I go on vacation, I get nasty grams. Where's my newsletter? Where's my, you know, I went to spring training last year for three weeks, and, boy, I got ripped when I got back. That's awesome. Well, I, I can see why you get the, the responses you do. Um, you know, I, I just read the other day the 10 reasons why you should love baseball. Um, and the, one of them that, that I really like, number eight, you put the box score. And I'll just read a little ex excerpt from it. Um, you said, my beloved stepdad, Bob Knudsen, used to refer to an accordion as an orchestra in a box. That's how I view the daily box score, the symphony of the game recorded in, in space, one column wide by four inches deep. Um, and it just struck a chord with me because, you know, how, how often do you stop and think about it? But um, that box score tells a whole complete story and, and it's just numbers in there. Um, so, so I thought that was pretty interesting, but um, well, where I can, can tell folks- you the most I can tell you, Jim, the most fun I have in my life right now is to go to a baseball game with my tw two 14-year-old grandsons. And I taught them how to keep score when they were five years old. And so we all get a scorecard and we all got our own Mariner pens and we sit there and keep score and then compare. And obviously everybody, when you keep score in a scorecard, everybody has their own style and their own little nuances and stuff. But it's so fun to keep score of a baseball game with the kids and do all that box score stuff. And then we get all, you know, we get home, compare it, you know, and hang on to them. And the boys have hung on to their scorecards, you know, from every game. They can tell you, you know, pretty much every stat for any game they've ever been to. That's awesome. And, and when you talk about, you know, getting the attention of the kids, too, then that's such a great way to start them early. And so they can start learning the game and developing that, that love for the game. Um, where, where can folks go if they wanted to, to sign up to be a part of that newsletter and receive those? They can just send me, a, send me an email at bill at billknutson.com and, uh, and I'll add them to the list. It would be uh, no problem at all. Awesome. So I, I would like to um, back up ju just a bit. Um, so you were a founding member of the Fred Hutchinson Award. Um, 
which is given to an MLB player who best exemplifies the fighting spirit and competitive desire of Fred Hutchinson um, by persevering through adversity. Um, can you talk a little bit about your involvement in that um, and, and just kind of describe that process for me? Well, that, that award uh, in, in previous, it, it's been around for a long, long time uh, and it's evolved and changed its name a few times. Um, I think there was an organization in Pittsburgh called the Dapper Dance Society, if I'm not mistaken. And they had that award, it basically a community service award uh, for many, many years. And then they kind of let it lapse. And uh, Randy Adamack, who is uh, a longtime 40 year employee of the Mariners. I think Randy went to work for the Mariners back in 79. He is one of the most incredible people I've ever met in my lifetime. Uh, I was lucky to work with him for seven years, and I'm privileged to call him a friend, but Randy got wind of it, and he decided it was something we should do uh, in Seattle, and so we had a series of meetings and uh, wanted to do something with Fred Hutch, and so we ended up putting that whole thing together and basically changed it a little bit, but uh, kept the basic structure of it, and uh, Jamie Moyer's wife, Karen, who was a very, very active gal uh, and was the person who ran the Moyer Foundation, she was an incredible, uh, uh, lovely, lovely woman, smart as heck. Uh, and she and I and a group of people formed the first board. And so we started having the meetings and we started putting together what we wanted to do. And it kind of evolved into a major, major luncheon event at Safeco Field. Uh, we'd put plywood down on the floor so we didn't ruin the grass. And uh, we'd bring in major speakers and major you know, uh, supporters and so on. And, and that then became the, the main focal point of it. And then, of course, the Mariners, with all their media exposure, can keep it going all year round. But uh, that all started from Randy Adamack's desk. He's the one who deserves all the credit for it. And uh, Karen and I and some other great people were on the board. And, and you know, you, you, 20 minutes and hearing about what that was all about. Any sponsor we ever wanted, we give them a tour of Fred Hutch, and they were in. I mean, I don't remember anybody ever saying no to me. Uh, when you talk to him about the Fred Hutch, I mean, it's a big deal in Seattle. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's, such a, yeah. It's, it's such a great honor um, and, and such a great uh, organization. Um, now, I want to, I'm going to ask you a few, few tough questions, I guess. Um, we'll we'll see, see how we do here. Um, can you name your all-time Mariners starting lineup? I can actually. Um, I would say at first base, it's got to be either Alvin Davis or John Olerud. Uh, Alvin is kind of known as Mr. Mariner. He was kind of one of the first big stars of the franchise. Uh, he was rookie of the year, uh, 79. I think it was 79. I think he and Mark Langston were co rookies of the year, but I'd put Alvin Davis and John Olerud at first base. Uh, second base, I mean, uh, Robinson Cano, A-Rod, uh, Omar Vizquel, boy, that's a tough one. I mean, they all, I loved all those guys. I guess you got to give it to A-Rod, you know, just because of nobody's made more money in the game than that guy has. I think it's like 450 million bucks. So uh, I guess I got to give that to A-Rod. Uh, third base, um, I guess Beltre, you know, I mean, you know, Edgar Martinez played third base and played it well, but he had he ended up being a DH and, and missed out on several years of playing. I guess Beltre would have to be my third baseman. Um, 
Dan Wilson is my catcher, hands down. Uh, Edgar is obviously my DH. Um, outfield, um, obviously, you've got to have Ichiro in right. Uh, while Buner played right, I'd put him in left. And obviously, Junior is your center fielder, hands down. I mean, end of that. That's a short conversation there. Although I got to say that uh, we've had a couple of uh, great center fielders. I mean, uh, Hindu wasn't exactly chopped liver out there. You know, Dave Henderson, he did a great job. Uh, and and Cameron, when Griffey left, Cameron came in and had to be one of the toughest jobs in the history of Mariner baseball. How the hell do you replace Ken Griffey Jr.? And the first night he was out there, he crawled that wall and did a Griffey, you know, catch snow cone catch over the top of the wall, uh, you know, that the and stood the fans stood and he he felt the fans fell in love with him first night he played, and so he Mike did a great job and and he had one night when he had uh, if not mistaken three if not four home runs in one night I mean he had a huge night that was just unbelievable so. Um, you know, but you can't, you're not going to replace Griffey, but uh, he did an awfully nice job. My starting five has got to be Randy Johnson, Felix Hernandez, Mark Langston, Freddie Garcia, and uh, Jamie Moyer did some wonderful things for us. I mean, you know, his fastball was, uh, you could read the writing on it when it came in. It wasn't exactly 100 miles an hour, but man, that guy could pitch. And he basically outthought the hitters, you know, and uh, and has a number of records. I couldn't recite them to you right now, but he holds a lot of Mariner records. And so Jamie Moyer, Freddie Garcia, Langston, Felix, and and Randy Johnson, I think would probably be my uh, my uh, closer. Would be JJ Putz did an awfully nice job for us. Norm Charlton did a great job for us in the you know in the early 2000s. We had that great run. Um, Sasaki, Kazu Sasaki did an awfully nice job for us when he was here. Uh, and obviously our manager would be Lou. You know, you know, we've had, I was checking the other day, we've had 17 managers in 43 years. So we've had the lifespan of a manager in Seattle is not very good. But wow. uh, Lou had the job for 10 years and uh, probably would still have it if he were still here. But, uh, uh, you know, obviously Lou was the favorite manager of the fans. And every time we lose a game, everybody, you know, Lou come back. And, Lou does some commercials for a senior facility here in Seattle and is still active on television. And, uh, and I, you know, I wish he was running for governor because I can't stand our governor. Uh, <laughs> Lou would make a great governor, but anyway, that's yeah. my, uh, that's my picks. Yeah. Well, that, that's a pretty uh, formidable lineup <laughs> you got there. Uh, they might uh, give that 2001 team a run for its money, I would say. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll go on with some rapid fire questions for you here. Um, Let's see. All right. Favorite ballpark food. <laughs> at the, at our ballpark. Anywhere you're going to any, any stadium. What do you got to have? Well, I, I'm a pretty traditional guy. You know, a lot of the ballparks are, there's a lot of diversity nowadays and you know, the Mariners are serving fried grasshoppers. So, I mean, you can have a, you can have a, a, a cup full of fried grasshoppers uh, uh, in three different flavors, barbecue and something else and something else. It's unbelievable. It's a hot item, believe it or not. But, uh, you know, I'm a pretty traditional, uh, you know, hot dog guy. Um, so, you know, I, I don't have too much in the way of exotic. Uh, they do a, a, a really gorgeous, fabulous uh, um, beef sandwich um, at the uh, T-Mobile that's really 
pretty special and uh, you can have it either with beef or turkey and uh, so I'm a big hot turkey sandwich guy so I, I always convert it into a hot turkey sandwich but uh, I my uh, my food tastes are, are, are pretty basic yeah well uh, what, what about what, what's your favorite place like to watch the game from well, uh, I actually watch it. Uh, there's a, uh, a semi-private area uh, called the Terrace Club at the uh, T-Mobile or Safeco. It's, it's a private uh, area right above first base in the second deck. And so I sit in the front row uh, looking right down on first base. If I look up, I see the entire skyline of Seattle and the sunsets and Puget Sound and the ferry boats. If I look to my left, I see first base. If I look to my right, I see right field. And the scoreboard and the, you know, or the scoreboard is a multi, multi, multi-million dollar deal these days. And so um, my favorite place is probably there. Although I have a, a, a nice affinity for my uh, leather chair at home in front of the widescreen. You know, the bathrooms are nice and clean here. The beer is cold, the food's cheap, parking is free. And, uh, and if it's 13 nothing Red Sox, uh, I can turn over and watch Law and Order on about 30 channels. That's right. Some, sometimes you can't beat that leather chair, man. Um, and speaking of leather chairs and, and, and watching some movies, uh, what's your favorite all-time baseball movie? Well, I've, I've been thinking about that lately. Somebody else asked me that question. I mean, uh, I guess it has to be Field of Dreams like everybody else. You know, I mean, I love Bull Durham. I love Moneyball. Uh, I like League of Their Own. I thought that was, I learned a lot that I didn't know, even though I've been in baseball my whole life. I watched For the Love of the Game this morning with Costner at, uh, with my breakfast. And, uh, and I, even though that's a love story with a baseball background, I like that movie too. So most of my movie uh, favorites tend to be more contemporary. I know there was some, you know, Eight Men Out and a lot of the great older movies. Uh, uh, <clears throat> but I, you know, I, I the movie that makes me cry is Field of Dreams. You know, I mean, it just, how, how do you not love Field of Dreams? When he goes out there and plays catch with his dad, I mean, I'm, I'm a basket case every time. I mean, and yeah. I've seen it, you know, 10 times. Yeah, we, we know the ending, but it, but it gets you every time. I, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about uh, it. That's one of my all-time you know, favorites. Costner is an amazing athlete. You know, I mean, that guy's the real deal. I mean, I've watched him throw. He can throw. You know, it's not all special effects. I mean, that guy is a hell of an athlete. Yeah, I, th I think when they were filming um, the part at Fenway, he got to take BP on the field and they say it was putting him off the monster. So um, that's 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 pretty cool um, to, you know, just a quick side watch. story, Jim. I was uh, at spring training a few years ago and I had a bunch of the uh, CEOs. I used to take them down to the minor league field in the morning and let him take batting practice against the uh, the pitching coach. And so the pitching coach would throw, you know, throw beach balls up there so that, you know, the CEOs of these banks and stuff could, you know, get to get their some wood on the ball and, and get a couple of hits and say, that, you know, hey, they hit a big league, you know, pitching coach. And so it was always fun to bring them down. And they were just like kids in a candy store, you know, to, to pick up a bat and, you know, and dig in. So anyway, we get all done doing that. And, uh, Pitching coach says, Bill, you want to take a couple hacks? And I said, God, I'd love to. So I'm the same way, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled that I get to do it. So I put a little dirt on my hands and I dig in. And, and the next thing you know, the pitching coach walks off and Mark Langston walks on the mound. <clears throat> now, all of a sudden, my whole life passes in front of me because I've just gone from my friendly pitching coach 
to a guy who throws 95 miles an hour and is 25 years old. Well, he threw a half a dozen pitches by me. I have no idea how fast they were going. They clearly were not anywhere near what a big league hitter sees. But I don't remember ever getting the bat off my shoulder. I mean, I don't think you could have put a postage stamp between the bat and my shoulder. I mean, all I saw was the wind up and a pop in the mitt scared the hell out of me. I thought to myself, oh, my God, this is I mean, if you were standing up there and the previous guy had just hit a home run in a tough game, you know, and the pitcher's throwing 100 miles an hour. I mean, talk about time to change your shorts. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't. I'm a lefty, so I couldn't imagine facing Chapman from the left side coming in that <laughs> slider. His, you don't you don't know what's going to come. But uh, yeah, I still say hitting a baseball is, is one of the hardest things in, in all of sports. I, I don't care um, what type of athlete you are. You, you put, uh, you know, any NFL player, NBA player up there in the batter's box, they'll, they'll probably look silly. <laughs> but, well, the um, Seattle Seahawks have got a pretty good quarterback who also plays baseball. And he has said that he, the toughest thing he's ever done in his life was trying to hit a major, you know, trying to hit uh, big league pitching with, I mean, with a round ball, with a round bat coming at you at 95 miles an hour. I mean, he said he'd rather look at a couple of 300 pound linebackers trying to kill him than do that. Yeah, and that that says something. I don't know. I don't know if I want to be in his his position every Sunday, but um, this is kind of along the same lines. Um, who would you say is the greatest fictional baseball character for for many of these movies or, or books or anything like that? Got to be Crash, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> he, Crash Davis is. Bull Durham's up there too and on my favorite list but just just when he <laughs> I mean they're the back and forth between him and Nuke Lelouch on the mound and um <laughs> it's it, he's just an, an iconic iconic um figure in in baseball in, in general um I've, I've talked to a lot of general managers who have told me that that is a very very that everything you saw in that movie is it happens I mean yeah. you know it that's that all that crazy stuff it really happens all the time yeah, that's my, one of my favorite scenes is that is when, when they have, a, I, I, think, I don't know if uh, Lelouch's dad is coming to the game and he's all nervous and they have this, this huge mound visit and every, all the position players start coming in and, you know, the bench coach starts, he's like, all right, what's, what's going on out here? And he's like, well, I got a, Hector has a hex on his glove. We need some <laughs> live chicken and um, <laughs> Lelouch can't breathe through his eyeballs. And, <laughs> like, it, it, it gets me every time. Um, it, just, it just reminds me, you know, some of the guys that, that I played with too. Um, and uh, just, just some of the, the fun teammates and fun stories, you know, uh, from, from growing up. But uh, what about, I know you mentioned in Griffey um, and just the, the youth and enthusiasm that he brought to the game. Um, who are some of the guys that, that you love watching today? Oh, well, today, gosh, there's, uh, you know, I mean, uh, our friend down there with the Angels, uh, Mr. Michael, is kind of fun to watch. I mean, good grief. That little poop in Houston, I can't stand that little guy. He must be hitting 800 against the Mariners. You know, his strike zone is about the size of a coffee cup. I, I don't know how the hell you'd strike the guy out, you know. He drives me crazy. I mean, I I can't stand him, but I'd love to have him on my team. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, God, he's uh, he's amazing to watch. And uh, I get a I get a kick out of watching that big guy with the Yankees, you know, who's uh, seven foot eleven and four hundred pounds or whatever the hell he is. My God, what a monster! At least he's got a strike zone that 
you know, I know he strikes out once in a while and it's pretty good size strike zone, but uh, he's an awful lot of fun to watch, but I like fast. I like the game played fast. I'm not a big fan of giant home runs and, you know, I like little ball, which is where the Mariners are going. And I'm, I'm excited about that. I mean, they, uh, I think they finished, think they finished third this year in stolen bases and they've got, you know, the average age of the Mariners is 26. Now I think they're tied for the youngest um, team in baseball. And so they are stealing a lot of bases. The manager has basically given them all a green light and said, guys, if you think you can go, go because they're, he doesn't want to take that enthusiasm and excitement away from those young kids, you know, they're coming up. And, uh, and so it's really fun to watch small ball. And uh, I am looking forward to seeing a lot of that over the next few years as these young kids mature and, uh, you know, and become what we all hope some of them will become. Yeah, no, it sounds like they got a bright future and um, you know, it, small ball and stealing bases, it, it's such a, a lost art too. Um, I mean, when you got a tear around the base pass, that can totally ruin a pitcher's rhythm. Um, and it, it's certainly nowadays um, definitely overlooked. Um, but what would you say? Um, I know they've had a few uniform changes throughout the years. What, what's, what's been your favorite Mariners uniform and, and logo design? Well, uh, I helped design the first logo, which was the Trident. Uh, we did that on a bar napkin at El Gancho restaurant in 1976. Uh, and I used to always take, I took some heat from my boss because uh, the trident is pointed down. And in Greek mythology, if you point the trident down, all the good luck runs out. And so he said, why didn't you turn the trident up? And I said, well, I didn't turn the trident up because if you did that, it would look like a bad Husky logo. And I didn't want it to look like, you know, uh, the Washington Huskies. So anyway, uh, you know, that's probably my favorite just because I had a, 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 you know, a little small, small, small part in, in helping it. But I think the current Mariner uniform, the current Mariner logo is spectacular. I think their current logo, I mean, it doesn't have the history of a, you know, Yankee logo or a Dodger logo or the Cubbies or whatever. But from a pure graphic standpoint, I think the Mariner Trident right now, or the, uh, the compass is spectacular. And I think I sent you one the other day, but uh, that is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful uh, logo that I'm very, very enamored with. And I, I mean, I wouldn't change a thing in that for the next 20 years. No, that's awesome. And it's definitely some very uh, thoughtful and creative branding there. Um, so rumor on the street has it that you like to play golf too. Um, who, if, if you could choose three players in the history of baseball, players, coaches, personalities, and you get to go to any golf course in the world, what golf course are you going to and uh, what three individuals are you bringing with you? Three baseball players. Yep. Well, it's um, the best course I've ever played is Pebble Beach. So I've got to, uh, I've got to say Pebble. I've not had the pleasure of playing Augusta and, and I've played most of my golf on the West Coast. So, you know, there's some great golf courses on the East Coast that that I would love to play someday, but I haven't gotten there yet. But, uh, uh, you know, how do you, how do you argue with Pebble beach? I mean, it's just breathtaking. Every hole is breathtaking. Uh, I mean, the, the uh, Marshall is always yelling at me because I'm always stopping and looking at, you know, looking at the ocean or looking at whatever. And we, I've had some semi fist fights with marshals who tried to hurry me up, but at six foot eight and 300 pounds, they aren't able to do it physically. 
So uh, that would be, you know, the uh, uh, George Brett, I, I would love to play. I mean, I, the amount of stories that would come out of Brett's mouth in four hours would be worth the price of admission and the outrageous green fees at Pebble. So George would be one. Uh, who would be two? Uh, you know, I, I let me think. I, that's a damn good question. Uh, I I loved uh, Don Drysdale was Dave Niehaus's uh, partner uh, doing Angels baseball on KMPC when we hired Dave, and I liked Don. Don was a charming, charming guy, and he's tall like me. I think Don was six five or six six. I'm six eight, but uh, but uh, I, I you know Don was a wonderful guy that I really wanted to get to know better. And uh, he died way too soon. And uh, so I guess I'd put Don in there. George would be in there. And probably Nolan Ryan. I, I, uh, I'm a big, 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 big Nolan Ryan fan. I used to watch him throw 150 pitches at the Kingdom and then he'd go downstairs and work out for two hours. I mean, literally before they turn the lights out in the visitor's clubhouse, they'd have to kick Ryan out of the gym because he'd be down there riding the damn bike at one in the morning after he threw 150 pitches and he hadn't even showered yet. He'd go from wow. the mound, you know, in and get on the bike. And so uh, that guy was a freak of nature and uh, there'll never be another Nolan Ryan. There'll never be another guy throw that many no hitters. And I mean, he was, you know, is something special. And uh, I think he's kind of gotten screwed over a little bit in Texas. And uh, I mean, if I had Nolan Ryan involved in my ownership group, he'd be there forever and he'd be out front forever. Yep. And, uh, you know, so I guess Nolan Ryan and Don Drysdale and, uh, and uh, those three, and, and I'd love to play, you know, I'd love to play Augusta sometime, although there's a couple holes there that look awfully narrow for my driver. Yeah. I, I don't think I'd fare too well there with my slice, <laughs> but that's uh, that's a pretty good foursome right there. Well, it'd be uh, fun. I'd guarantee you the stories would be great. I tell you what, I think uh, Nolan would be doing squats in between every <laughs> every every stroke there. Um, but uh, we'll we'll finish up with uh, we'll call it the extra innings question. Um, you get to go back in time and cover any one season in baseball history. You get to travel with the team, go to every game. Uh, what season are you reliving, and, and what team are you following? I guess it'd have to be the 1960 and the, uh, the, the Yankees and the Maris and Mantle. I mean, I followed, you know, I was a kid. I was, I had one of the first transistor radios in our gang and, you know, I listened to, I mean, I got kicked out of more classes in school for listing those games on my little earphone. Um, that had to be a historic, 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 you know, deal to follow. I, I think probably, you know, that year would be my favorite year. By the way, let me, I, I got to tell you, uh, if I can take just a second, my all-time, all-time uh, promotion I wanted to do that I never was able to do. Um, I met the Warehouser family when I was with the Mariners, and they have millions of these little seedlings. They're, you know, small, the, where, when Warehouser chops a tree down, they plant one also. So, you know, they're, they're constantly planting more trees. So anyway, my promotion was going to be, and it was all tongue-in-cheek but it was going to be grow your own bat knife. And I was going to give away 50,000 seedlings at a ball game so that everybody could go home and plant a tree and grow their own bat. And then George 
the, the warehouser people said they'd give me 50,000 more trees that we could give jointly to the city of Seattle. And so we could plant trees all over the Pacific Northwest in the city, as well as give away 50,000 grow your own bats. And I thought that would be so fun. And I thought that the television spot could be a right. We could really have some fun with that. And uh, anyway, my owner didn't get my sense of humor and didn't get it. And I thought, you know, we did funny nose glasses night one time. It was one of the biggest promotions we've ever done. There's still people 30 years later wearing those funny nose glasses with the, you know, with I mean, you don't always have to give away a bat or a ball or a bobblehead, you know? And I used to love to do that unexpected stuff that would really be fun. So grow your own bat night. Somebody sometime is going to do that and it's going to be great. I hope, I hope someone picks that up and I hope they invite you to the game too. <laughs> but um, Bill, this, this, this has been really fun and I, and I appreciate um, uh the, the folks at the Puget Sound Honor Flight for, for connecting us. Um, that's a great organization as well, um, if you have a chance to check that out. But uh, again, Bill, thank you so much for being on here. Jim, it's my pleasure. Thank you. I've enjoyed it very, very much. That wraps up today's conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please give our podcast a like and share it with your friends. And if you have a baseball-related story to tell that you would like to have featured on the show, drop us a line in the comments, or you can send a direct message to our Facebook page. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, I'm Jim Tunison, and this is For Love of the Game.